The saddle hunting concept was not a new concept. It's been around commercially since the late 60s. And then there were a few other companies that kind of messed with it through the 70s and 80s. And then they ended up going out of business in the early 2000s, 2001, 2003, I think, something like that, or maybe the late 90s. There was literally no commercial, commercially available options when Ernie and I found this. We're going to build exactly what we want. We just got lucky that other people thought it was a good idea too. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host Danny Ferris and I've got my uh, marketing gopher buddy with me, Evan Williams, and today we are talking with Greg and Ernie from Tethered Nation. Um, Tethered is a company that sells basically hunting saddles, um, and we're, we're going to be talking about saddle hunting today. But uh, right when we were getting on the call together and everybody was jumping on here, I was finishing up a phone call, guys, and uh, it was with one of your old buddies and my old boss, Mike Carney, and uh, he had a whole lot of good things to say about you guys. Um, how long have you guys known Mike? I know that he is a giant fan and has written uh, a couple of features in Bowhunter Magazine uh, specifically about saddle hunting and, and really focused on you guys a lot. He loves your gear, uh, loves the technique. And uh, so anyway, how, how long have you known him? Well, we've, we've kind of known Mike since the beginning. Um, it's funny, uh, for everything that Mike would have the, uh, the financial wherewithals to do and whatever else, he's a big DIY guy. He loves to make his own stuff. Right. And that's the, that's the kind of guy that saddle hunting appeals to, especially in the early days when we first got started. Um, and we met him at our very first ATA and we were there, we were there just with backpacks. We weren't there displaying. We were just checking out the landscape to see, is this something we want to be involved with going forward? And it was the second night, I believe, and we're tired. We're getting ready to go to bed. And all of a sudden the phone rings and it's, it's Mike. And he says, Hey, why don't you come out and have a beer at, you know, whatever the local place was. Yeah. <laughs> we looked at each other and we're like, man, I'm really tired. But when Mike calls, you answer. So we did, we, we ran down and met this guy for beers and we sat in a corner booth in this bar drinking beer with Mike. And all he wanted to know about was like, how do I make this aider? And, and what's the deal with this thing here? And how can I tie this rope? And, you know, if I wanted to make this, how can I do it? And I bet you we were there three or four hours. Oh, we closed the bar down and oh, went yeah. to another bar and closed it down. Just talking, just talking saddle hunting and DIY stuff. And man, he was ate up with the whole concept. and. You know, we've kind of been good friends ever since, and we make sure and keep in touch with him. And you're right. He's written a couple of articles. He put us on our first magazine cover. Yeah. Um, so he's been a real good resource and a real good friend to us through this whole process. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, he probably got louder and louder and louder <laughs> as that night went on, didn't he? <laughs> Well, that was the thing about Mike is, you know, we had seen him on the outdoor channel, you know, bow hunter TV and seen his magazine. So we knew who Mike was. Yeah. And then when you get a guy like that and he's so into the hardcore aspects of, of, of hunting, you know, you see guys on TV and, you know, writing articles and you kind of think that they have it easy sort of when it comes to hunting and you expect that they're hunting. Oh yeah. <laughs> manicured properties that are managed and nobody shoots any deer unless they're giant. And then you sit down with Mike expecting that. And what, what came out was a guy just like us, yeah. who was a hardcore guy who really cared about hunting a lot. And that impressed us. Well, and and so, he had, he had problems that he was trying. Yeah. He had problems that he was trying to resolve. Mm -hmm. um, he's got a property in Illinois, as I'm sure you guys know, that is, a great whitetail property, but it is, man, there is some challenging terrain in there and he's got neighbors and the neighbors don't always, uh, you know, play by the rules that Mike is trying to play by, you know, and uh, sometimes it's tough when you have uncooperative neighbors. 
And a lot of times you are setting out, you know, regardless whether they're playing by the same playbook or not, you're still competing with them for deer sometimes. And, you know, he was looking for ways to be able to get into places that he previously wasn't able to get into. And you guys were a major, major solution for him. Mm -hmm. Um, Greg, you and I were talking just a little bit and, you know, uh, I have, I, I have some saddle hunting experience, um, but it's from quite some time ago. Uh, my experience was with trophy line tree saddles and we're talking like the mid two thousands is when I did most of mine. Um, and you know, there were some challenges to that equipment. There was, you were able to do the same thing, but you weren't able to do it as easily as we are with your equipment today. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, I, I still consider myself a novice when it comes to saddle hunting. So I'm going to be asking a lot of questions coming from the guy that has probably heard about it, maybe even dabbled a little bit, but, uh, you know, I want to, I want to find out kind of what you guys have done with those systems to make them easier to deal with and then go over some of the, the basic premises, uh, and, and, and benefits of being able to do things with a saddle. One of the, when I very first started, one of the things that I was worried about was just the noise of getting in there or trying to get in there in the, in the dark. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, how you guys address that and how your equipment is, is, is designed to address it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Colorado because that's where I got started in saddle hunting in 2009, 2010. I was active duty army and that's where I got, I got stationed in Fort Carson, Colorado. Which is my backyard. <laughs> yeah, your backyard. So I tried to import my Southeast hunting tactics. I grew up in North, Northwest Florida. So we hunted pine plantations over corn feeders and food plots with ladder stands and climbers and there were straight trees. And I tried to bring that method to the front range of the Rockies and it just didn't work. And (laughs) everything was heavy and bulky and loud. And I said, I'm never going to kill anything like this. So that's when I found saddle hunting through John Eberhardt's book, hunting pressured whitetails. I read that book and learned about a saddle. I bought what, the only thing that was available at the time, which was the trophy line packages back in 2009, 2010. And I, I kind of had the same experience as you, Danny. It was, there were some challenges with that gear. It was bulky for what it was um, compared to what we have now. Kind of heavy, kind of cumbersome, but it worked. And yeah. I kind of cut my teeth off of that system. And it was only a couple short years later after that that I started building my own kind of in the garage. That's how Ernie and I met was through some all, an online forum where we were kind of all building our own stuff and trying to make the system work. Um, but that's how this whole thing got started was kind of me, Ernie and I and a bunch of other people on the Tether team trying to solve those problems of weight and bulk and noise. And so that's what we set out to do. Well, uh, it's funny that you kind of had your roots in Western hunting. The first thing that I ever used a tree saddle for was on a, on a, uh, on a isolated wallow elk wallow up in the mountains. And it was a long ways from any trailhead. There wasn't no pack in a tree stand in there. And I was like, you know what, what if I took one of those saddles and went up in there and, and hung that saddle over the tree. Long story short, I packed that saddle in, um, on a scouting trip and I had, a a a little hide up there where I was stashing some gear and had a stash, uh, and a, a bear got into it <laughs> and, and my saddle was gone when I went up there to, to actually hunt. But anyway, it's a solution that was like in that situation, I couldn't pack a tree stand up to where I was going. I mean, it just didn't make any sense. Um, and you know, on top of that, depending upon which way the wind was blowing that way, there was, you know, four different trees that I could get up into with that saddle if I wanted to, you know what I mean? 
Um, so I, it's, it's kind of ironic that you got your start right here in my backyard doing this Western stuff. Um, exactly. And it was, it was all about mobility for me because mm -hmm. like I said, I, I was hunting Fort Carson, the, the actual military base at the right. time. It was very difficult for, um, civilians to, to hunt on Fort Carson. It is a target rich environment. There's a, there's a lot of animals there, but it's, it's hard to hunt. There's a lot of red tape, military maneuvers always take precedence. So you get kicked. It's, it's not a very user-friendly place to hunt. Right. However, since I was active duty and it was easy access for me, I put up a couple of tree stands and, you know, they're heavy and the, the steps and the ladders. And I did all that because that's what I was used to. And then I would see animals, you know, in another location. And I wanted to bounce over there and hunt that spot. But it was the tactics and the gear that I was using were not very conducive. They were made, they were made to, you know, the 30 pound tree stands and you, you, you're not moving that stuff around, uh, in, in the season, very, very efficiently. So that's, that's how I found saddle hunting was really to solve my mobility problem. Well, and not to mention here where, where I live, unlike where you grew up, grew up in Florida with straight trees where they were probably hanging tree stands 30 feet in a lot yep. of situations. Um, these trees are not straight. I nope. mean, you can get up into a pine and trim a few things and open it up just a little bit for, to be able to hang a stand. But if you're hunting cottonwoods or anything like that out here, we don't have straight trees. It's, yeah. it's challenging to find one to hang a stand on, you know, but whereas if you're using a saddle, you can, you can hang in anything just about. That was my experience. Um, you, you, you nailed it. You know, coming from the Southeast, we had climbers and you could pretty much find any pine tree or straight, straight little red oak with no branches and you could be up 30 feet in 10 minutes and be ready yeah. to hunt. Or, you know, we hunted just like everybody else shooting houses on food plots and stuff like that. That's how it's what we do in the Southeast. And, right. uh, like, you know, not to beat a dead horse, but I just, I could not hunt that way. And that was really my first time ever encountering a situation like that, where the gear just, it just would not work, uh, for the, for my, for my strategy or my technique level. Like I'd never hunted from the ground. I didn't know how to spot and stalk. All I knew was tree stand hunting. So it was very much a learning curve for me. Right. Well, That's super funny. Cause I came the exact opposite route. I grew up out West. And so oh. I'd never sat in a tree stand until I was in my mid twenties. Um, Interesting. Where, what state did you grow up in Ernie? Uh, North Idaho, just outside of uh, Coeur d'Alene in a little town called Kellogg. Right on. Okay. And it, it's funny cause there's, when you grow up in a, or in the West with a Western attitude, there's a lot of guys who think that getting in a tree is just, man, that's a, terrible way to go or a, a boring way to go. And I'm just the opposite. I grew up out here and like the, it's so different than how we grow up hunting out here. It was intriguing to me and I really enjoy it. Well, it's like we tell people all over the country, uh, you know, a golfer carries more than one club. Use the, yeah. uses the driver when it makes sense and he uses the putter when it makes sense. And if you think about all of the strategies that it takes to successfully kill big deer and big elk, you got to use them all. You know, when it makes sense to sit on a wallow or a water hole and hunker down and play the wind, do that. And when that's a dumb idea and it makes sense to get aggressive and go after them and use a decoy or something like that, do that. So I, I like to tell people that, you know, think about the situation and use the right tool for whatever that situation is. Now, one of our saddles, it's not always the right tool, right? Sometimes when you're hunting a cornfield, you ought to, you know, a big, huge 300 acre cornfield, you ought to sit in a shooting hut and do it that way. Or, you know, there's lots of ways you can be successful, but to just dismiss like elevated hunting, like it sounds like yeah. some of the folks out, out West might do that's, you're just limiting yourself for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. Cause it can be tremendously effective even out here in the West mm -hmm. elk hunting and you know, things that you wouldn't even think of. Um, so the biggest benefit that I see though, with saddle hunting, well, it's a benefit for anybody like Carney, you know, who owns his own piece of ground in Illinois. He was pri primarily interested in it for that 
But the guy like me who grew up, my first whitetail hunting experiences um, were basically traveling out to different places in the Midwest and hunting small pieces of public. And there's a lot of competition and the ability that it gives you to get back into uh, the places in the back that aren't being pressured is just huge. And to be able to hang anywhere is huge. But that equipment that I was using back when I was doing when, when I was doing a lot of that, that trophy line there. Well, what were the uh, they were the Cranford easy steps that they were using. Mm-hmm. And you basically had to get up there and you had to screw in a circle around the tree of these easy steps for you to stand on. You know what I mean? And it was, it was cumbersome. It was time consuming. You would get one partially screwed in, drop one on the ground or whatever. You guys have changed the gear a ton. Why don't you talk about how, how it's gotten a lot easier and just way more convenient to use. No, kind of like you had mentioned, right? Let's, let's go back a little bit. The mindset of the Western hunter and the reason he hunts on the ground is it's too big of a pain in the neck to take stuff into the woods. Yes. Right. It, 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 if tree stands were super light and easy to take in, you'd see a lot more of them five miles back in the Rockies, but they're just not right. right? It's, it's too much work to get it at, back to where you need it to be. Um, and so that's the beauty of this is, is the mobility. But even, even with that, there was some evolution that needed to happen. Um, a lot of the stuff that came before us was heavy, bulky. Um, it might have had metal D-rings, metal parts that made noise. Um, like you had mentioned, you know, people were standing on a ring of steps, so your mobility in the tree wasn't as good. There was a platform that came before us. Uh, Lone Wolf had something called the Assassin, but it was eight, nine pounds for the, the platform alone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at our system now and you can get you can get a platform, a set of sticks and half of your ropes and saddle for nine pounds. You know, oh, you're, wow. it, it's it's such an advancement in that ability so that now there's no penalty uh, to be able to carry that stuff with you. And, and maybe you throw it on your back and you walk in and and maybe you sit on the ground that day and you don't feel guilty for carrying everything in because you didn't really have to pay that high of a cost to get it in and out. So you you don't feel as dedicated to it, but yeah, the whole point was when we started this, nobody was making something that was efficient, lightweight, and really met the standards that we were looking for. So Greg and I kind of put our heads together along with a team of other guys that we had met along the way and said, you know, how can we do this better? And, you know, it was totally a selfish move. It wasn't, we weren't trying to make a bunch of money or change the world. We were just trying to get our own gear and yeah. it just kind of bloomed into this. Hmm. Yeah. And it's funny that one of the goals we've told this story a bunch was er- er- Ernie and I kind of talking through, you know, we're, it's almost launched. We're about ready to turn the tethered website on that we built. And we launched in, we launched on June the 1st of 2018 and and the lead up to that, Ernie and I are talking. It's like, well, how are we going to do? You think we're going to make any money? You think we're going to get all this stuff for free? Or did we just waste our savings on, you know, <laughs> a, to, something that's totally worthless? And we were like, well, maybe we'll make enough money to where we can get some cool gear for free. And then we can afford to go out on a, on a guided elk hunt out West. We were like, that would be awesome. And yeah. And then we turned the website on and I think we sold out our, our first manufacturing run in like a couple of days. And we were like, "Uh Oh, now we have a whole different set of problems to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now you, uh, you struggle with having the time to go out and do your elk hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. But Ernie, Ernie touched on it there, you know, just a moment ago, it, the saddle hunting concept was not a new concept. As best I can tell, it's been around commercially since the late sixties uh, with a, with a product called the Anderson tree sling or the big buck sling. It's gone by a couple different names. And then there were a few other companies that kind of messed with it through the seventies and eighties. One of those is trophy line. And they ended up going out of business in the early 2000s, 2001, 2003, I think something like that, or maybe the late nineties, but anyway, they were out of business. So there was, there was literally no commercial commercially available options when Ernie and I found this. 
um, there were there there was one that came a little bit later on that came from a uh, arborist company, um, and they kind of took one of their uh, their arborist saddles and put camo on it and called it a hunting saddle. But it wasn't it wasn't really what we were looking for. So at that point, like Ernie said, it didn't exist. It just simply did not exist. And so we said we're going to build exactly what we want. And then maybe people will buy it, maybe they won't, but at least we'll have what we think is the best, the most mobile and efficient tool for elevated hunting that's, you know, in my opinion, that's ever, ever been made. So that's what we wanted to do. And it, we just got lucky that other people thought it was a good idea too. Well, and again, it comes down to that, that being mobile aspect. You know, and Danny, if I ha- we've had conversations all the time because there's places that I can't get stands and sticks into because of small creek bottoms or, you know, terrain limitations or where it's at, even back in Kansas. And having the ability to take a saddle in with either an SRT system and we can go over that or, you know, a one stick method and stay super light and get in there a little bit deeper um, has really allowed me to expand on the properties that I've had the ability to hunt, just like what Mike's doing with his place in Illinois. When it comes to ascending that tree, just a bunch of different methods when it comes to saddle hunting, what are some of the methods that you guys prefer? Like, what do you, what is your go-to ascent method? So I think I would, I, I go with sticks. I've just, just regular old climbing sticks. We make a couple options. Lots of companies make good climbing sticks. Um, that's my preferred method. Um, I've used everything under the sun and Ernie can chime in here as well because he's, he's used everything under the sun as well. I'm talking screw in steps. I'm talking, you know, carbon fiber climbing gaffs like a lineman would use. Uh, I've used the single stick method. I've repelled out of tree. I've done it all. And I kind of came back to just using sticks because to me, it's the, it's the safest and most repeatable way for me to do it in the dark. And now that we've kind of, we came out with our, our sticks, you know, I'll, I'll shamelessly plug ours called the one stick, which we set out to make the lightest climbing stick on the planet. So now for four climbing sticks, it's literally only four pounds and oh, I can wow. climb essentially any tree that I can get my rope around. I can climb that tree for only four pounds. <laughs> so for me, that's where I, I kind of live is those, those ultra light climbing sticks. But I know other people that swear by the one stick method, like, like you talked about Evan and, or that SRT DRT, which er, I'll let Ernie talk about those. Cause he has a background in tree trimming and he can explain it better, but you're right. There are a lot of options. Um, and you know, I prefer sticks, but Ernie might have a different opinion. Yeah. So, uh, like Greg mentioned, I, I do come from an arborist background. Um, I've got a whole bunch of years in as a utility line tree trimmer and also as a residential tree trimmer. Um, so for me, if it's legal, spurs are my go-to. I would, I would pick a set of spurs over sticks every time. Now, unfortunately, with you know, some of the regulations on public land and et cetera, they're not legal everywhere. But anywhere now, that are I spurs can, the things that you're it, that an arborist puts on their feet and just has a, a lineman's belt around the tree and you just basically climb. Is that what we're, we're talking about when we're talking about spurs? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Um, and like I said, to me, putting those on is like breathing. I did it for a job for so many years that um, I can walk up to a tree and put those on and be all the way up at Henning Height and tied in quicker than you'd ever believe um, and quietly. And so mm-hmm. the beauty of it for me is there's never a limitation on height. I'm never going to run out of sticks. Yeah, you need um, to decide where you're going to be at. Yeah. And then if I need to go, uh, off of a, uh, a branch at an angle, I've got the history on these things that I can walk out a branch and then walk up another, another upshoot and set up over there. If I need to, you know, there's a lot of things that I can do that, you know, maybe the general population isn't comfortable doing, but since I spent so many years as a tree trimmer, I can. So for me, the, uh, the versatility of having those spurs is my favorite. Um, it just, it, for me, it just is the better way because I can, uh, I can do more. And I have the, uh, the carbon fiber set that Greg alluded to. 
And by the time I stripped all the metal buckles off and I redid everything, got rid of the Velcro and really customized them for the way I use them, I'm at uh, two pounds, six ounces for the pair. And so, yeah, so for just over two pounds, I can go in any tree, anywhere to any height. And so for me, that's my go-to. But then again, there are those restrictions on certain pieces of property. And at that point, I'll use a set of sticks. Yeah, Um, and the the downside is obviously legality, like Ernie pointed out. Like, it's not legal in a lot of places. You also have to deal with, you know, does it or does it not damage the tree? Which, you Mm -hmm. know, you could argue to cows come home about if it does or it doesn't. You have a lot of people that swear that it does. Other people swear that it doesn't. Um, so that's a downside. And then you have the learning curve. There is a learning curve. I, I did spurs for several years and I got pretty good at it, but I'm nowhere near what Ernie power is. He's like a monkey when he puts those things on, he can be up and up a tree in no time. And he makes hardly any noise. I wasn't that good, but I still figured it out, but there there's definitely a learning curve. You got the legality issues and then the health of the trees, if that's a major concern for you. Yeah. I would, if you guys hadn't said anything about legality, I wouldn't even guessed that that was an issue anywhere hmm. um is it is it in isolated regions of the country or is it kind of scattered all over the place where it's illegal it's definitely you, you, you don't really know i mean i've hunted in some states where it's legal and i've hunted in other states where it's not and then there's even the difference between like we're talking specifically public land here if it's private yeah. land you do what you want but specifically right. pr- public land you can also have different regulations based on like, like, let's say you're hunting in Missouri. Well, you've got federal land in Missouri. You've got BLM land. You've got, um, you've got state public land. You've got wildlife management area. And each one of them can have a different regulation. It might be legal on federal land, but illegal on state land. So you have to know those regulations Mm -hmm. and it's on, it's on the hunter to know. Um, So that can get a little tricky about learning all the, all the regulations about where it might be legal and where it's not. Are there usually issues with screw in tree steps wherever there are issues with, uh, with um, the, the tool we're talking about? Yeah. So that's where it stems from, right? Generally the regulations don't specifically call out tree climbing spikes. What they call out is any climbing method that breaks the bark. Okay. Any, any, method that creates a channel uh to the heartwood from the bark um is what's generally uh prohibited and so your screw in steps is where that kind of comes from that's what most people think about but and it you know it also kind of depends on the conservation officer you talk to some people interpret it a different way than others um as far as like how much damage are you really doing because you know even on a on a good climbing stand Uh, You climb that same tree three or four times and you can see a track mark all the way up and down the tree where you're breaking the bark. But yeah, yeah, that's that's legal. But yet some of these other methods aren't. And it just kind of depends on the situation. Almost every Mm -hmm. pair of sticks I've ever used broke bark, you know. Right. Um, And what about a bow hanger? Can you on the play in the places where you are putting a uh, a bow hanger up or is, is that considered the same thing as a screw in tree step? Yeah, it, it is. is. So that's really that, that's the rub. It's like, you know, we're, we're not telling anybody to break the rules here, but right. at some point, you know, who hasn't screwed in a bow hanger on public land where you're technically not supposed to do it? So, oh, dude. You know, I, so man, I just where from where we are, I just we, incriminated I, myself. <laughs> I mean, I've done it. I, we've done it. I mean, everybody's done it. So it's it's uh you know, so now we just kind of stay away from it just because now, yeah. we, you know, we run tethered and we want to make sure we're doing everything sure. above board. So we've kind of moved away from that stuff just because of that. Well, and honestly, I, I've got a hiss strap. You know, now we're specifically talking about hanging methods in the tree with gear. Um, I picked up a hiss strap two years ago and I wouldn't go back Mm-mm. to a screw in. Um, I dealt with five or six different styles that I could not get into bark and again where i'm hunting is big cottonwoods it is a it is a beast to get into some of those trees oh yeah and i'm i'm done i'm giving up um that his strap it's a it's a cord that wraps around the tree with a locking carabiner or a a locking strap and i've got spare that can go down with loops 
and I can I can carabiner in my pack. I can pull all my gear out, and I've got the the S hooks that go right into there, and I've got my bow on a on a C hook, and I've got all the S straps for calls or whatever else I might need right there, and I can position them where I want, how I want, and it's a tighter profile to that tree. Hmm. Oh, it's it's the best gear hanger that's out there. I mean. You know, not to kind of toot our own horn a little bit here, but it really is, especially for the saddle hunter, to have all that versatility of where you put your gear, what's hanging there. It's public land legal and everything that it offers you, and including, like you said, the ability to hang your backpack from it. Um, it's just a great, great deal. And then uh, not to like totally get off topic, but it works awesome as a uh, mallard duck holder in flooded timber. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you more, Evan. I think that that his strap, the, the hang, hang your stuff strap is we like to call it. Uh, it is, it's totally awesome. And I've had it, I've strung the tail of it between two trunks and then put my pack on another. Like there are so many things I've used it as a deer drag. I mean, you can just do a ton of things with it. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's a super, super useful piece of equipment and it's legal everywhere. So there's no question. So that's kind of what we've gone to. Yep. And, and for you DIY guys, like you can go, I know I'm always on the tether website. You can go get it there. If you want to be making your own stuff because you want different colors or something like that, I know I've seen Ernie do a tutorial on how to physically make one yourself. Yeah, it's uh, so that's been a real fun video. You know, again, we came from the the do it yourself crowd, right? We we came out of guys making their own equipment and, and we like to stay close to those roots. And so, yeah, as soon as we made it, we uh, gave everybody the option of here's exactly how to go ahead and make your own. And, you know, we try and price it such that it's better and uh, more convenient for you to buy it from us. But if you wanted to make it yourself or if you're handy, yeah, we gave out a full instructional video of how to do it yourself. That's awesome. I'm looking through your website while we're talking, guys. And like it's been a while since I since I looked into saddles and take me through the different saddles that you guys offer and what the differences are and which ones you, which one your personal favorite is. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm looking at them and you, you, a lot of guys would think they're all, they've got a tree saddle. No, you guys have got like what? Five, six so tree we, saddles. We, we've got three options. Um, we have what we would call our Cadillac or our Ferrari. That is the phantom saddle. That's the uh, the saddle that won um, best new product at the ATA um, two years ago, and then after that we built the well. Our first product was the Mantis saddle. That's Mantis. what we launched tethered with. Um, that one is no longer in production. It was it was followed up with the Menace saddle. I'll get to that one in just a moment. But just to kind of stay on track, so I don't confuse people, we've got three. The Phantom Saddle, which is like our Ferrari. Then we built John Eberhardt's saddle for him called the ESS, the Eberhardt Signature Saddle. He's been hunting from a saddle since 1980. So he has 40 years of experience and he is a, a, a big time, you know, we're big time fans of, of John and he's, you know, helped us out a lot. So we, we, we built that for him. And then we have what's called the Menace Saddle. And that is a, a little bit more budget friendly and a little bit more, what we say, like if you've got a lot of junk in the trunk, if you got, if you're a little bit on the bigger side, you might find the menace to be a little bit more comfortable, but those are our three, our three saddle options, the phantom, the Eberhart and the menace. Interesting. So when I'm looking at the phantom elite kit versus just the phantom saddle, I see a bunch of stuff on that phantom elite kit. What, what is all that? So the elite kit, um, it is a phantom, right? But what we did is we worked uh, hand in hand with the guys over at First Light uh, to be able to create a camel system. Uh, And so what we did is we took our phantom and wrapped it in a four-way stretch uh, Spectre camel so that we could have a camel saddle. We did add one small change in the fact that we added an extra molly loop closer to the front to the bridge, which allows you to bring your sys hauler forward and attach it a little bit more to the front of the saddle so you can access it more. Uh, We took our MVP backband um, and again, put a camouflage skin on it. So it's still the MVP. It's just 
color match for those guys who like to have everything match. And then the final piece of that is the sis haulers. Now that's where we actually did do some cool stuff there. Yeah. I was going to ask you define that. What is a sis hauler? <laughs> well, you heard about our hang your stuff strap, right? Yep. Yeah. So our sis hauler was store your stuff. Okay. Um, so, uh, it's a store your stuff. And then at one point we had the, the sis hauler ES. So it was the store your stuff, extra stuff. Cause it had more pockets on the outside. Um, but yeah, so that's what that is. But it basically it's a pocket that you can attach to your saddle, uh, for holding your ropes or accessories, your grunt calls, your release, whatever you might need, uh, over the course of a hunt. And that is a special edition sys hauler in that package that has some bells and whistles that our current offering uh, doesn't have. So if you were to buy the elite kit, not only do you get everything color matched and camel, but you get a few nice little ads and pieces that you might not see on our regular offering. And, and those sys haulers are important because that was, so is the MVP, um, which is our, like Ernie said, the back support for like an all day hunt, or if you're sitting for a long time, or if you have back issues, just a little bit more comfort, but that that's all, those are all important pieces because like we talked about earlier, we set out to make this thing a system and you know, the stuff that was available prior to it was heavy and bulky. Our sis haulers, they only weigh a few ounces and they live on your saddle. So you can keep your whole process very trim, very efficient and very repeatable. So my ropes, they go in the same sis hauler pocket on every hunt. So I never have to worry if they're in my pack or in my truck or in the garage. They're always right, right there. Right. And my my gear hanger and my back support that lives on my right hip on my in my other sis hauler so i never have to worry if i have my gear to hang my bow in the tree or if i have my back it's always there so so you just go to the rack grab the saddle and go you're done you have all your ropes you have your gear hanger you have everything you need outside of your weapon and a backpack Um, but everything i need to physically hunt in that tree it is, it lives on my hips and it's in one small trim lightweight package. And I do it the same way every time. So it's repeatable in the dark. I, you know, it's in in the, in the army, we used to say, don't practice until you get it right. You practice until you can't get it wrong. Right. And that's something we like to preach is to, is to get your system down. So even in the dark and the cold with gloves on, like you can still do your system without having to worry if you forgot something or you forget how to do it. And you just said a mouthful because 90% of the time when we're out there practicing, I don't care whether you're just on the range shooting or what, what, whatever we're doing, we're not doing it in the same gear as we are typically hunting in. And it is so important to get out there and do it in the actual gear that you are going to be dealing with, especially if there's, if it's cold outside, if it's dark, like you're talking about when you're dealing with a tree that you've never been in before, all of those things, like that advice is paramount. It's, it's huge. It is. I I sunk a telephone pole in my backyard. I don't have any trees in my backyard. So I went and found a telephone pole on Craigslist and, and sunk it. So I could set up my gear and shoot, you know, shoot my bow, which we're getting into you guys world here. You know, Mm -hmm. if you're not practicing with your bow in, in, you know, battle conditions, you know, that's another thing we say train as you fight. It's the same thing. Like you need to be stressed out when we were doing our military training, you know, the, who were the NCOs and whoever they would put you in stressful situations because that mimics as closely as you can you know, wartime environment and, and hunters, you know, maybe you don't have to go to that level, but if you're not shooting, like if you're a saddle guy and you're not shooting from a saddle, at least part of the time in your summertime training, like you're wrong. You're going to get in the tree and it's going to be a little different. And even when I hunted from tree stands, I used to practice from tree stands because you, know, you bend a little differently. Your posture's different. It feels a little different. So I preach to people and we, we preach to people at tethered all the time. Hey, practice this stuff in your backyard every now and again and make sure you're comfortable with it because you you need to be you need to be at the point where you can do it um, in the dark because that's that's how the real world works. Mm-hmm. God. I don't want to go into it, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I need to listen to this conversation <laughs> like 
I have had a couple of screw ups at the moment at the, at the most painful moment for there to be a screw up specifically because I had not been really practicing in that particular situation. And I had things creep up that you weren't expecting. One of which was a bino harness that was on my chest shooting at a strange angle uh, from, from the ground, sitting on my butt from the ground, having to lay back and that bino harness getting into my string and pushing my arrow up off the rest and watched an arrow fly over a big bucket about four yards over his back at 18 yards. Um, Yeah. I've had a couple of situations like that, but you were talking about shooting out of that saddle and, and that's one of the huge benefits that I don't think a lot of people realize is how much versatility you have to shoot um, when you're when you're in a saddle as far as getting around a tree different angles things like that uh, if you're sitting in a tree stand and you're sitting on your butt in the seat with your feet on the platform and you turn around and you gra- you 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 have your bow in your lap if you're a right-handed archer you can shoot basically everything from the front of your nose to the left and kind of behind you but anything that other direction is extremely hard even if you stand up and face the tree anything that is over there over your right shoulder is extremely difficult you can't get a shot off in that direction tell us a little bit about uh what you can do out of a saddle especially with this the new platforms and everything that you guys have it, it was one thing to do it on those screwing steps back in the day I think that you guys have changed that exponentially. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big advantages, right? Is, is you really don't have a blind spot. Uh, Once you are comfortable with your equipment and you're, you know how to trust your rope and your footwork, um, there's really not a spot around the tree. You can't shoot at, Um, which is nice because you can use the tree as cover and then kind of step around it to make your shot when you need to. And there's a bunch of different ways to get into position to make those shots. And even on, like you said, the wrong side of the tree, where if you're a right-handed guy, it's in your, in your weak area, there is methods and there are ways to kind of position yourself to be able to make that shot where in a traditional hang on style stand, you just don't have a shot until that deer either moves into a position that you can shoot from or, you know, something along that lines. And usually by the time that happens, they're out of range anyway. So uh, you just find yourself in that situation. There's another thing that I wanted to kind of bring up though, and this is more from a physics and engineering standpoint. When you think about like, let's say you're in your backyard shooting and uh, you're at full draw and you're standing there pointing at your target, your entire body is pivoting at your ankles. The only connection you have to a stable base is at your ankles. And so the entire length of your body can blow in the wind. It can, you know, your balance and et cetera. When you're in a saddle, You've got your feet on your platform, but you've also got the saddle around your waist. And a lot of times a guy will put a knee in a tree. So now you've got three solid anchors holding the bottom half of your body from moving. So you actually are able to get a little more stable and take a more secure shot because you're not pivoting at your ankles and you do have a little more brace. And then for the rifle hunters, it's even easier because you can lean forward and kind of just lay the rifle right against the side of the tree and hold it on there for stability that way. And it's got a built in brace. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even thought about that. Um, do you guys like, do you have videos on your YouTube channel or on the website about how to shoot out of a saddle? Oh, different methods, yeah. techniques. Yeah. Yeah, we do. And, and then, you know, now that we're four years into this experiment, now there's untold thousands of videos on YouTube. If, if you just searched it on YouTube, you would find I've got some great videos on my own channel. We've got some on Tethered. We've got guys that are friends of ours like Garrett Prawl, the DIY sportsman and the hunting public um, who have all done videos on YouTube about how to do it. And yeah, so there's no shortage of or, 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 or no, there's no reason to not be educated now because there's lots of resources out there that will help guys understand how the system works. It wasn't like that, you know, pre pre tethered, pre YouTube. It was, yeah, you, there was no way to learn about this. Mm-hmm. It was, you had to really figure it out on your own, no, you know, just unless you were lucky enough to read Eberhard's book, 
or just get lucky to know someone that hunted this way, there, there was pretty much no way you were going to learn about it. And that all changed once social media came around and specifically YouTube and, and made that possible for us. Man. Um, oh, dang it. I just had a question in my head that popped out of there as soon as it popped in. Um, oh, so when it comes to getting up in a tree, the time that it takes you, um, I, I know that you guys, you, you know, you've been doing it a long time now. When you go into a place, when you start at the bottom of a tree in the dark, what do you think the average time is that it takes you once you're accustomed to the equipment to actually get up there and be set up and ready to go? I, I would say no more for me. I've been doing it a long time, but for me, if I'm taking my time, focusing on safety, focusing on not making any noise, focusing on not making any big movements to where if there is a deer, maybe possibly bedded close by, he's not going to see. If I'm really taking my time and setting up, it's about 20 minutes. That's trying to be very quiet. There's maybe a few limbs that I have to negotiate, you know, climbing and paying attention to safety. If if I'm not really worried about that, if I'm okay with maybe it's an afternoon spot on a cornfield and I don't expect to see any deer for two hours and I'm okay just kind of jacking up the tree real quick, I can be set up in seven, eight minutes. But if I'm really taking my time and and paying attention, about 20 minutes is what it takes for me. Yeah, I think that's realistic. I was going to say 15 to 20 for taking your time and being quiet. That's not long. That's a lot shorter than hanging a tree stand for me in in a lot of, in a lot of situations. Well, in your first time though, it's not going to happen. Right. Your first time doing it, you know, you're going out on public land, finding a tree or private land, doesn't matter where you find a tree, you're climbing a tree for the first time. Maybe you've practiced at home in your backyard, like we recommend, but it's, it would probably take you a little bit longer than that. You know, plan on 30 minutes for your first few times doing it just to be safe. But as you nail down your system and figure out your process, you can cut it down to 15 or 20 minutes. And and you're still, you're not going to make noise. You're, you're, you're not going to make big, huge movements. You're going to get, you know, it's going to be a good, good kind of setup for you. Well, and the big thing too, is part of that whole practice thing is once you figure it out, you can do it all in one trip. You can literally have everything staged and ready to go so that when you leave the ground, that's it. So you're setting your sticks as you go, your platforms with you, your bows on a bow rope, your backpack, everything is set up so that you don't have to do things twice. You, you walk up and when you get up to where your platform is and you set your platform and you stand on it, you never have to get off of it. You just work on, okay, now where am I going to put my hiss jab? Where am I going to put my bow? How's everything look? And then you're all set up. And so there's some efficiency that can be done just by perfecting your system. And, and and that's why we made our system the way that it is, is because we wanted to focus on that. We didn't want to go up and down the tree, like Ernie said, a couple of different times. So we designed our gear to where it supports the process. It, it, it's not a tool you have to fight. It's there to support you. It's, it's, you know, it's an aid. It's, you can hang your gear from your saddle. We made it that way. You, the stuff that you need, like your ropes and your gear hangers, it's all designed to fit on your hips. So you're not having to deal with a, a pack for your essentials. You know, if you're carrying a coat or camera gear or food or water, you know, sure, all that can live in your pack. But the essentials that you need to hunt, they just live right on your hips. And it's really easy to access and quiet and super convenient. I, you know what, I, I just came up with, uh, uh, this might be a unique situation, but I think that it's more and more common these days. How do you guys usually address it when you got to put two guys in a tree? We do it all the time. Uh, Let's say that, well, how do you, how do you set up? How do you, how, how do you usually do it? So we typically just set up on opposite sides, um, hunt, hunting from a camera guy. Like I know in a tree stand, like typically the guy with its the camera will go a little bit higher than, uh, than the, the, the hunter, the camera guy will maybe be off to the side, kind of in that dead zone that you were talking about earlier. Where you really yep. Shoot. yep. Usually right there in that dead zone. Yep. That's where the tree stand guy would, would set up. Um, so we do it very similarly in, in a saddle hunting setup. You kind of put that, you put your, your camera guy kind of off to the right, which is the hardest as a right-handed shooter. If I'm staring at the tree off to the right-hand side is the hardest spot for me to shoot. So that's typically where I'll put my camera guy, maybe higher, maybe lower. doesn't really matter. It just kind of depends on the setup, but we we've had 
zero issues um, bringing a second guy in the tree to film. Um, we've been doing it for years now and you know, no, no problem, no problem whatsoever. Interesting. I, I think that you're, if I was going to go out and film an episode of Bowhunter TV, I'm going to want to insist that my cameraman does this a couple times before he, the same as the hunter, yes. you know what I mean? And I, I've been up a tree with a guy who has never used a camera arm before. And it's like, what do you, I can't believe you haven't set up a camera. This is not the first time to try it. No. You know what I mean? God. Well, the fun thing is um, most of the camera guys that we use, and, and forgive me if Greg already mentioned this, my phone kind of cut out for a second, but um, we've ditched the camera arms completely. Yeah. Um, because the saddle allows the cameraman to swing and pivot and get really good shots, even from over the shoulder of the hunter, such that the camera arm gets in the way in that situation. So we just shoulder mount most of these cameras and go mm. shoulder mount them or use one of those little monopods that go on like a two footer that he can rest against his hip or something like that. Yep. Yep. Those would work. Yep. They'll end up tying like a, like a 550 cord, yep. you know, necklace, lack of a better word, and just kind of hold it at their chest and film like that. Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is super sweet. Well, now you're not going to get the, uh, the same, the same kind of quality that you might need if you're shooting for the outdoor channel for Mike on the, on bow hunter TV or something. I mean, you're not going to have that super steady base that you get with a camera arm, but for what we do on YouTube, it's fine for us. Yeah. Well, and a lot of that, it, it, you're not usually filming stuff a long ways out. You're, you're pretty, pretty close up with a lot of that type of stuff when you're elevated anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, um, Man, I you've renewed my interest, <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna have to uh, I'm gonna have to talk to you guys offline about getting one of these new kits. Like I said, I've still got that that old trophy line kit uh, that I've always kept around just in case for when I needed it. But I can tell that I am living in the Stone Ages. Um, I'm I'm driving a a 1975 pickup truck instead of a instead of a 2020. Um, well, you know, it doesn't go to waste, though. You can use it to, like, cover your four-wheeler. <laughs> They're giant. Was that a fat joke? <laughs> no, that was just the old trophy line saddles were so big. They that, were. Uh, that you could, you know, you could cover your four-wheeler with it. Well, and it was a heavy kit. When you had everything that came in, inside that kit, it was, it was fairly heavy, and you didn't have you didn't have sticks like you guys do now, like your tree sticks. I'm looking at those and I don't care. Even if you had no interest in jumping into a saddle, those tree sticks are awesome, dude. Those are awesome tree sticks for anybody that hunts out of a tree stand. Mm -hmm. They are. We, so I think obviously I'm biased. You can, you can turn it off now if you're listening and you think that, you know, I'm just being biased, but I, I honestly believe that we have the two best climbing sticks on the planet. We have, well, well, the one stick, it's it's called the one stick on purpose because it yeah. only weighs one pound. So it is the most ultra light climbing stick on the planet. And then it's expensive, but if you if you you know don't want to spend that kind of money on a climbing stick, we've got that skeletor stick, which for the money, you know, for 250 bucks, I think mm -hmm. is what we're selling for a four-pack. I mean, you can't beat it. It is feature rich, it's quiet, it's user-friendly, it works really, really well. Yeah, we've got we've got a couple of great options for climbing sticks for sure. Well, and I'm a, I'm a climbing stick fan have become one and well, shoot a couple of years ago, you couldn't get sticks. It was, I don't know what happened there for a little while, but everyone was out of stock for like two years or something like that. You could not find them mm -hmm. anywhere. You know, that's why Mike Carney called us was because of sticks. That, that, yeah. I was going to say to circle back. What you specifically mentioned right there is, is when the first time Mike called us, he said he was trying to get, he was trying to do a climbing stick shootout with one of maybe, maybe North American whitetail. I can't remember, but one of his publications, he was trying to do a story about climbing sticks and the editor came back and said, Mike, I can't get any. He said, I've called all these manufacturers and nobody has any. And so Mike asked a bigger question. He said, why is that? Why, where are all these, who are all these people buying all these climbing sticks? That's how he found us. And he found saddle hunting and he called me and Ernie and said, Hey, I think you guys are the problem here. Nobody's buying, you know, I can't get any climbing sticks because they're all buying them because they're buying saddle hunting gear. So anyway, you know, right. not to be a dead horse, but that's, that's how we got, got in touch with Carney. 
Interesting. Interesting. Well, guys, I appreciate having you guys on today. Um, that was very informative. Evan, you got anything else before we go? Last things, one, how to find you guys, and two, your personal kits on how you build out your saddles going into the woods. Cool. Well, um, so to find us, uh, it's pretty easy. We are tethered. We spelled it wrong. The marketing guy that came up with it thought it was a good idea to, to misspell the name. <laughs> and it turns out that's kind of a pain in the butt whenever you're giving your emails out and, and website, but it's tethered and we spelled it weird. T E T H R D. Um, if you Google saddle hunting, you'll probably find us. We're tetheredNation.com, pretty much everywhere. YouTube, the website, social media, all that stuff. And then my personal kit, I use the, the phantom with uh, two sys haulers and I like the recliner, which is the less expensive back support option that we make. I just find that I like that one a little bit more. And I'm using uh, uh, four one sticks with eighters on my sticks because I'm short. I'm only five foot seven. So I, I, I tie on an eighter on the bottom of my step uh, stick, which is, you know, just an extra stick, extra step. Excuse me. That's confusing. But I tie on an extra rope step on the bottom of my sticks so I can get a little bit higher. But that's my kit. Phantom saddle, sis haulers, recliner and the uh, one sticks. Yeah. And you know, my, my kid isn't a whole lot different. I lean toward the MVP rather than the recliner. Obviously I've got my hitch trap in there. Uh, one thing Greg didn't mention is the predator. I use, uh, the regular size predator and not that the, uh, XL has anything wrong with it. It just takes up too much space in my backpack. So I like the small one. I use our, our ropes and, and like he had mentioned three to four, one sticks with eighters and away we go. And, uh, and we, you know, as we had mentioned, we designed equipment the way that we would use it. So mm -hmm. it's not a big surprise that we both kind of use the same system with just very minor tweaks. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Evan, what are you? Using? I mean, I know you've been running the system for a little while now. Yep. So I do the predator platform. I like the smaller one as well. Um, one, I'm, I consider myself a smaller guy you know, running a size nine on my boot so I can move around a whole lot more and reduce the total size of that platform. And then I'm running a Phantom with the Sys ES on my left. And then I use a recliner. So I've got a recliner in the front pouch. And then in the back pouch is where I keep my um, pull-up rope. And then I've got both of my 11 millimeters, uh, my tether and my uh, Lyman's in the main pouch. So I've got my, my orange and brown tether is underneath. My green lineman's is on top, easier to pull out and go. And then I actually leave my right side open. I've got two 550 paracord loops because um, the sticks that I use when I use those are, um, there's some old muddy pro sticks, I think is what they are. So super heavy. It's like four sticks for almost 10 pounds or something like that, 10 and a half. Um, but the way the their steps work is I can fold those up and feed those through my loops, put my first one up with a, with a one or two step aider, get up, and then I can use three and usually get to that 15 to 17 foot range. Um, I have two hanging up off my right side as I'm going up. So, and then I, I just use a, a carabiner with a 550 cord on my predator, hook that to the back and climb up with my backpack, have the, uh, um, hiss and everything in the top of my pack so as soon as i get up there i can reach in grab the hiss strap and then carabiner is already on my pack loop and it's hung right there and everything's right in front of me and i can use that for a, a knee pad as well awesome what you, i'll tell you what listening to you guys talk about this and i can tell that all of these systems are super customizable basically for you know what each they, they, they're very uh unique to every different user so where's the best place for people to start looking before mm -hmm. they you know before they set out to do this to figure out which system they're going to like the best I, I personally i would jump on the tethered nation youtube channel and then um maybe maybe the g2 outdoors channel and maybe the uh, diy sportsman uh, YouTube channel. Okay. And then, and then the hunting public. Um, if, if you, if you're familiar with the hunting public, um, they're, they're pretty good group of guys that hunt a lot of public land shocker, uh, in their name, but they did some stuff too, some resources about 
you know, what the kit might look like. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say those four places, Tethered Nation, um, THP, uh, the Hunting Public, uh, DIY Sportsman, and then maybe G2 Outdoors, which is my personal channel. And then uh, there's a ton of resources there. If you can't find what you need on those four channels, you, you're asking a weird question. Right. Right. Well, the other thing is to, um, when you get to the Tethered Nation webpage, check out the Teach and Train event schedule because more likely than not, Tethered is in your neighborhood at some point over the course of the spring and summer and come out and try this stuff out for yourself, whether it's at a trade show or a city park or a lot of times if you even just ask, hey, do you know anybody in our neighborhood? We usually know somebody within an hour or two of where you're at that's more than willing to come and do a little demo. And so that way you can actually put your hands on stuff. Uh, You know, there's nothing like actually sitting in these things. And if you get the opportunity to to get to a teaching train or a trade show or, or meet up with a buddy who has the equipment, that's a really good resource. Well, that's awesome guys. Like I said, I appreciate you guys being on here. We'll have to do it again. All right. Thanks guys.